Hey, Gamjabar listeners, a quick content warning before we get into this episode. Around the 54-minute mark, Leo and I will be discussing some creative choices by Brian and Kevin J. Anderson in one of their books. The conversation involves sexual assault, and I know that's a topic that not all of our listeners may be comfortable with. So we just wanted to let you know here up at the top that around 54 minutes, we'll start talking about that. And we wrap up that discussion at around the one hour and five minute mark. So you can skip that part of the episode if you'd like to. We hope you enjoy this one. Today on the show, we're opening the can of worms. Mm. The can of sandworms. Okay. Of uh, the canon, the canonicity of sa- the... Hmm. You're saying something <laughs> different every time. And now I'm unclear on what this episode is. Never let them know what you're going to say next. (laughs) Keep them guessing. We're talking canonicity. Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. Leo. Yeah. We're here to untangle this messy web, this ball of yarn, Yeah. this uh-huh. rubber band ball i'm running out of metaphors <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> of dune canonicity you know we put it to a vote and y'all said well at least our patrons said talk about dune canon idiots put your yeah. money where your mouth is that's true y'all wanted this episode and here we are delivering we're here for you indeed now before we get into untangling the messy canon of the dune universe Let's make Shoutout Mapes proud and knock out some housekeeping first. So to start off, a spoiler warning for today's episode. As long as you have read the first book, you are good to go for today. We will be quoting some passages from later books, but we're going to keep them completely out of context. We're going to omit any character names or locations or plot details. So the quotes are there just to make a point. They aren't there to discuss anything that happens in future books. So as long as you've read the first one and know the story of the first Dune book, you're good to go for today. Indeed. Now, the best way to support us and what we do here at Gamjabar is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash Gamjabar. And of course, we do need to shout out our Quisats Hadrack level patrons, Case Aiken, Matthew Good. Gents, the canon of our <laughs> love for you is indisputable. Yeah. No matter what anyone else may say about it or write about it or adapt it. Yeah. It's one of the few things that is solid in Gamjabar canonicity. <laughs> you can also check out our merchandise store at gamjabarshop.com. So check it out. It's another good way to support what we do here at Gamjabar. That's right. And the final bit of housekeeping is a reminder that we love to get your messages So email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Send us cute pictures of your cats, which ice cream flavor you love most, what kind of pulp you love in your orange juice. The correct answer is none. And anything related to Dune, of course. 
How much pulp in your ice cream, though? That's oh, the real question. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's talk about today's game plan. <laughs> let's talk about today's episode. So, the game plan for today. We're going to talk first about a timeline of Dune publications. Then we'll touch on the tiers, right? Our tiers of kind of what we consider important and over what and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, and then finally, we will get to the part of the episode I know some people are looking forward to, which is us being very clear about some of our issues with Brian and Kevin's work. That's right. But before we get into any of that, before we set this sh ship a sail on the seas of canonicity, canonicis sea, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's take a quick ad break. Stick around. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Let's start off our discussion today, Leo, by simply laying out the publication timeline of the Dune books and the expanded Dune books and Brian's works, et cetera, et cetera. I think that'll help us create a baseline for the rest of the conversation. Right. So starting with Frank's own work, Frank wrote six Dune novels, as most of us know, starting with Dune in 1965 followed by the sequel Dune Messiah in 1969, and then Children of Dune in 1976, and then God Emperor of Dune in 1981, Heretics of Dune in 1984, and finally, Book 6, Chapter House Dune in 1985, just a year later. Right. And he had plans to write additional books, did not get to because he passed away in 86. Exactly. Now, the Dune Encyclopedia, something we often reference on this podcast, was released in 1984. And this is notable because the encyclopedia came out before the publication of Heretics and Chapter House. And thus, it doesn't take into account any of the events of Heretics of Dune or Chapter House Dune. Right. Now, finally, there is the Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson era of the Dune canon, that's the era that we are currently in. <laughs> yeah. Brian and Kevin teamed up and began releasing books in 1999, and since then have released a staggering 16 prequel, <laughs> sequel, and expanded universe novels within the Dune universe up through 2022, and there are more planned to be released this year in 2023. Indeed. So from 19... 65 to 2023, we've got Dune stuff through the wazoo. But let's talk about the different tiers. And here's where we have our first tier. Frank Herbert, <laughs> ever heard of him? The guy who wrote Dune. Right, the man himself. His words, in our opinion, and this should not be controversial, and it's not, <laughs> are law. He fucking wrote the book. Right. You're going to argue with him? He came up with it. Right. And specifically, this means that nothing should contradict the lore established in the books. Correct. Correct. And in instances where there are contradictions, we always defer to Frank first. Totally. So if there is a contradiction, what Frank said about it is canon. What anyone else said about it is not. Yeah. And to his credit, like over 100 episodes later and three years of this podcast, we really don't run into it that very often. 
Like, right. Because we, I mean, partially that's because we chose to work with the Dune Encyclopedia, which we'll talk about in a second. But I think he created this like in very large universe within which there are quite a few gaps, but everything's pretty consistent. Like he did a good job of not having too many continuity errors within his own kind of stuff. Yeah. And he created a massive universe, but didn't tell us everything about it in the six books he wrote. There's a lot of room to play around in the Dune universe. Right. Which, this sort of segues us nicely, is where the Dune Encyclopedia comes in. Yes. Because the Dune Encyclopedia takes the large tapestry of the Dune universe and starts painting in some of the edges with its own details. So... To briefly explain what the encyclopedia is for the folks who may not know, the encyclopedia was a volume released in 1984. 43 authors contributed articles to this encyclopedia as in-universe historians. Yes. And the book exists as that, basically. It's an extension of the Dune universe or a companion piece to Frank's novels presented as an encyclopedia that's written in-universe in the year 15,540 AG, so long after the events of Frank's books. And every author, every contributing author, has a Dune name. Which it's is wonderful. so cool. They're it's like crazy. role-playing Dune, you know? They're like, yeah. it's like a and d group where they're making up their own stories. It's fun. And we do want to say the book had 43 authors, but a brunt of the work and compiling all of those stories together and editing them and publishing the final work. That credit does go to Dr. Willis E. McNelly, who was a close friend and associate of Frank. Yeah. Now, the existence of this cyclopedia might come as a surprise to some people. And certainly when we talk to people about our episodes and our research process, people don't know that the encyclopedia exists because it's no longer in print, which, of course, begs the question, why? <laughs> Poor K. Poor K, it's not in print anymore. Yeah. Well, Frank Herbert passed away in 1986. And at that time, the Herbert estate, or shortly thereafter, the Herbert estate fully formally fell into the hands of his eldest son, Brian Herbert, who subsequently uh, refused McNelly's attempts to have the Dune Encyclopedia reprinted. And it's understandable. Ultimately, the Herbert estate has ownership of this ip of dune yeah yeah so they're protective of the ip and obviously it's a very potentially profitable ip as well so you you want to keep you got a goose that's laying golden eggs well you know make sure the goose is taken care of and since the 90s they have said no to a few projects right right and complicated copyright battles aside at the end of the day the Herbert estate still has final say on adaptations of Dune material, and they said no to McNelly, basically. Right. He went back and forth with them, and there are message posts where he says that he is in active negotiations with the Herbert estate about the encyclopedia, about its reprinting. Ultimately, the estate says, no, you are not allowed to have the encyclopedia reprinted. And actually... In one of those message boards, McNally shared some of his feelings on the negotiations. He posted this on December 2nd, 2000. Quote, I am not, repeat, not interested in any financial gain from reprinting the DE. 
I would like to see it in print again because I am proud of the work done by my many contributors to the volume, as well as the vast amount of material it adds to the Arakeen saga. End quote. Yeah. Which I think is lovely. Like, he clearly yeah. has a passion for this universe. And yes, he'd make money off of it. You know, let's not disregard the fact that he would yeah. make money off of reprintings of the encyclopedia as one of its creators. He clearly doesn't care about that, though. And for him, this is more of a work of art. This is more of a point of pride, something he probably spent months or maybe even years of his life working on. And here he's making it clear to the folks on this message board in 2000 that he's trying to talk to the estate because he wants it reprinted as a work of art within the Dune canon, within the Arakeen saga, as he says. And I respect that. He also had some kind of like funny on that message board, couple funny quips about like, if I got royalties, that'd be pretty sweet. Right. But, right. you know, at the end of the day, like try to imagine in the 80s, you are this massive fan of Frank Herbert and Dune, and you got 43 authors together to like build something out of just passion and enjoyment. Yeah. So it's just to your point. I mean, is money nice? Yes, totally. But it's so clear to me that the Dune Encyclopedia was this achievement in McNally's life, who has like a ton of other shit. I was looking into his life a little bit. He has like dedications at universities. He's recognized by so many people for so many things. But this is still this thing that was clearly very important to him. Totally. After all, he was fucking active on a message board. <laughs> right, until like, right. It's it's very, very cool. It's very touching. Yeah. I mean, if he was young in the 2010s, he would have started a podcast about Dune. Oh, guaranteed. You know? <laughs> yeah. We we would have been boxed out by McNelly. I would. Because I he would, would have started his incredible podcast. By McNelly. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Yeah. It, it's clear that he has a genuine passion for this universe. He's a genuine fan, capital F fan of Frank's work. And I'm sure it hurt to have to go to the estate and beg to have your work reprinted that you're so proud of and be told no time and time again right. through all these negotiations. Now, all of this changed a little bit when there was a point at which the Herbert estate officially denounced the Dune Encyclopedia as an alternative take on Dune. And this is now an archived page. This is no longer, I couldn't find this on the active current version of the like Herbert Estate page, dunenovels.com. Uh, but there is an archived frequently asked questions page that was around for many years that has a letter addressing the canonicity of the Dune Encyclopedia. Right. And here's the letter. Quote, the Dune Encyclopedia reflects an alternate Dune universe which did not necessarily represent the canon created by Frank Herbert. Frank Herbert's son, Ryan Herbert, writing with Kevin J. Anderson, is continuing to establish the canon of the Dune universe. This is being done with the full approval of the owner of the Dune copyright, the Herbert Limited Partnership. While Frank Herbert himself considered the Dune encyclopedia interesting and entertaining, he did not refer to Dr. McNelly's derivative work while writing any of his Dune novels. Likewise, in writing their Dune novels, beginning with Dune House Atreides, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson have exclusively used and will continue to use Frank Herbert's original notes as well as their own imaginations and not the Dune Encyclopedia. 
We hope that the millions of Dune fans will continue to enjoy all of the works written in Frank Herbert's marvelous universe. A letter written by Dr. Willis McNelly, Brian Herbert, and Kevin J. Anderson. End quote. Wow. I just noticed that Brian Herbert <laughs> and Kevin J. Anderson and writing this letter are like, this is being done with the full approval of the owner of the copyright. And I'm like, me. Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> we're doing this and we like that we're doing this. It's like, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we joke, but like, there's a lot to pick apart in this yeah. letter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, clearly, a lot of things were not fans of, right? The claims that yes. the encyclopedia never represented Frank's canon, even though later on we'll talk about how he gave it his blessing. The claim that they're working on the notes, we'll talk about the notes later in the episode. And then, yeah, it, it just reads as a little disrespectful to the amount yeah. of work and to the incredible authors that contributed to the encyclopedia. Right. So for this letter to sort of brush all of that aside to claim it's nothing but like a little side project made by fans, it doesn't represent anything Frank would have wanted in his universe. We instead are creating what Frank would have wanted. It rubs me the wrong way, personally. It also contains in my opinion, implicit straw man arguments. It's saying Frank didn't base any of his books on the Dune Encyclopedia. And it's like, yeah, no one ever said that that was the case. Right. They just wrote to fill in literal gaps that he left. And then it says, but we are basing them on his notes and also our imaginations. And it's like- Right, the imagination line kills what? me. What? <laughs> yeah. You don't think they were basing it on their imaginations? They were, <laughs> what is right. the implication there? It's very strange. I'll also say, yeah, so like McNally never claimed to be foundational. And in fact, no one associated with the Dune Encyclopedia was like, he based his books on what we read. No, it's, it no. was a fan, a contribution to the universe. And the other thing here is like, this letter doesn't even, I don't even think it needed to happen, right? Like, Alternate continuities, the idea of like, this is the uh, McNelly verse, this is the Brian Herbert verse, like that could be the thing that we have today, but it's not because Brian and, and Kevin and the Herbert estate were like, here's our letter. Here's our letter addressing this. And it just strikes me that like, you know, Batman, there's like thousands of Batman. <laughs> Batman. Bat There's Bat Batmans. <laughs> Bat and Bat people. Bat pe that's true. There are quite a few bad people. Uh but my point being, the character Batman has like a thousand origin stories by a bunch of different authors. But that doesn't stop people from engaging with the ideas of the story and telling these so there's something about we there's this other thing that we didn't write. And we want to write a letter to all of you letting you know we didn't write that and we're writing this other thing. It's like, okay. Oh, and you used your imagination for it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they used any imagination to write this letter. <laughs> I, think the, I think the Batman analogy is actually really great because comic books have had this figured out for decades, right? Alternate realities 
adaptations that aren't necessarily like prime canon, but are still explorations of the ideas and themes of that character that we already know and love. Right. Those adaptations are some of the most iconic and best comic works out there when you yes. think Marvel, when you think DC. And nobody's out here like denouncing them, right? Nobody's out here yeah. like, oh, no, no, no. Actually, Stanley would not have wanted this. <laughs> yeah. And only anything that I draw is what Stanley would have wanted, you know? Yeah. Like, and you can say, yes, like there is primary canon. It is what the Herbert estate releases. Sure. You can clarify that without also having to take shots at a beloved piece of work like the encyclopedia. Yeah. All of this having been said, ultimately, these conversations, these negotiations basically comes to a close when McNelly sadly passes away in 2003 at the age of 82. Right. Now, to quickly touch on why we on this podcast love the encyclopedia outside of the things we've already gushed about, we consider the Dune encyclopedia to be tier two canon. So tier one is Frank. And then for us, the encyclopedia is tier two. And for some of our listeners out there, this raises the question, Abu, Leo, why this thing is not in print and the estate itself has rejected it? Why do you consider it canon? Allegedly, they wrote it without their imaginations. No like, imaginations! Gonna, zero imaginations were used <laughs> in the writing of the Dune Encyclopedia. I read the letter. Yep. I got the, read between the lines, I got what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well. When we started Gamjabar and we looked at these different sources, the reason we decided to play with the encyclopedia as tier two comes down to partially its forward, which is pretty hard to ignore in all of this. Right. So with that in mind, here's two quotes from the forward. Quote, in fact, many secrets hidden in the Dune Chronicles are answered here. End quote. And then a little bit later, Quote, as the first Dune fan, I give this encyclopedia my delighted approval. Although I hold my own counsel on some of the issues still to be explored as the chronicles unfold. End quote. Huge. I Huge. think that's Does so Does the profound. word approval stand out to anyone else? <laughs> delighted, even, <laughs> of the delighted variety, not right. begrudging approval. Right. I give this my reluctant, sad approval. No, <laughs> delighted approval. He's fucking into it. Right. He was like, this is great. Many of the wow. secrets are answered here. Yeah. What? what? <laughs> like, how, how, how clearer does, and this is Frank's own words. He wrote this forward in 1983 for the publication of this encyclopedia. How clearer does Frank need to be? Right. That he approves of what is written in this encyclopedia that it answers much of what he left a mystery in his stories intentionally. Right. I, I you know, again, <laughs> uh, I'm left a little speechless that anyone would argue against this, but alas, here we are. Yes. And I'll also point out, like, the 43 authors and McNelly wrote the Dude Encyclopedia as an in-universe document, which accounts for any mistakes and any changes that Frank was then going to make. They intended it to be a like fun plays within the rules of the dune universe book 
if there is a thing like a factual thing that that disagrees with something that frank wrote or even within itself because it will contradict itself sometimes it's like yeah because historians fucking disagree sometimes and there's like bad information out there and that doesn't make it useless it in fact in many ways makes it more alive and more engaging with some of those things that frank would have written because now if there is a factual disagreement between the dune encyclopedia and frank's universe we go why did historians get that wrong right when they wrote the dune encyclopedia and that's a whole new side to it that's so yes. cool yes it's fucking fun <laughs> it's just a fun great book actually i saw it was I, I didn't see a list of which ones but apparently some of the authors in the dune encyclopedia even wrote intentionally misinformed articles amazing because because of rumors that existed in universe they were Amazing. like this is this is what historians would would have written in the year 1500 you know ag like it's just it's a marvelous piece of work it it's really clearly is. by fans by capital f fans as you said earlier yeah yeah it really is and again to just blatantly disregard it feels like it just feels so unnecessary. We've said our piece about Brian and Kevin, but it just feels so unnecessary to take this piece of work that you can literally be like, a lot of this is incorrect because yeah. it's built into its own premise that a lot of this can be incorrect because history is often inaccurate. Right. And to just be like, no, actually, don't ever read this again and don't ever print it again. Feels like such an unnecessarily aggressive move. Yeah. And let's say... After all of our gushing, you're like, sold. I'd like to get the Dune Encyclopedia. It's out of print, but like maybe I can get a copy. Where could you get a copy? And here's another <laughs> like problem, basically. <laughs> Legally, you can buy a used copy. It yes. costs hundreds of dollars, sometimes more. Right. You can borrow it from a friend. Uh, you can check it out from the library. And that's kind of it. That's kind like, of it. Legally. Um, and then there's like, I don't know how this is possible, <laughs> but if you go on Amazon, there are reprints. Like people have like fan made yeah. the books. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. Questionable how that's happening. And also I'm hesitant to give our endorsement to those. Neither. I don't Same. think you've bought yeah, them. I no. certainly haven't bought any of the fan reprints you can find on like Amazon right. and eBay and whatever. So take that as you will. Like th those sort of fake reprints exist. Either they're like scanned pages that are reprinted and bound together into a volume. Right. Or, or they're PDFs that are, you know, something exists out there and you could get your hands on it. Um, but probably the safest way to consume the encyclopedia is to do some searching online and find a PDF version of it. Yeah. But um, that's tier two. That's in the Dune Encyclopedia and its complicated history and our very complicated feelings about it. At the end of the day, we love it. We use it on this podcast and we respect the work that's been done by all 43 authors, by McNally in their contributions to the Dune universe. And it makes for a lot of fun to talk about. It's true. This, of course, takes us to the next era of Dune, which is the Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson era, starting in 1999 and carrying on through today. Before we get into that, 
let's take a short break. But you're going to want to stick around because after the break, we're talking about Brian, we're talking about Kevin J. Anderson, and we're talking about some of the issues we have with it. I think I see thunderclouds in the distance. (laughs) Fast approaching. (laughs) They're approaching in a minute. So we'll see you in a minute, folks. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you're ready to fire up your imaginations because we are talking (laughs) about Brian and Kevin J. Anderson and their era. Yes. So to begin talking about Brian and Kevin, we should say that neither of us have read cover to cover many of the books. Like most of the 16 books we have not read. Right. We've read some. I've read, I think, two or three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I hated him. <laughs> I hated him so much. Uh, which is not like a hot take. Like, right. Very likely, if you're listening to this episode, you already know they're a bit contentious. But all of that to say that this conversation is going to be based on research. It's going to be our direct interactions for what it's worth with the text itself. And honestly... We also will caveat all of this with saying, if you enjoy their books, so much power to you. Genuinely happy for you because we don't want to yuck anybody's yum. Ultimately, we are doing this episode because people asked, why do we consider Brian and Kevin J. Anderson tier three? This is going to be why. Yeah. But we can only present two opinions on it. And we can't speak for the millions of Dune fans out there. If you're one of the Dune fans that actually enjoy Brian and Kevin's work, that's great. Yeah. We're happy for you. And we don't want our opinions to take away from your enjoyment. So we we just want to caveat all of that here at the start. Totally. But to get into it, let's talk about it. Like we said, in 1999, Brian teamed up with fellow sci-fi author Kevin J. Anderson. And the two of them began by releasing a short story called A Whisper of Caledon Seas as sort of a test run. Right. And then they jumped into their first true novel later that year, Dune House Atreides. And this would kick off six prequel books that they would write together, exploring the 10,000 years leading up to Dune. Right. And then after that, they'd go on to write Two sequel books, Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune, which ostensibly complete Frank's original story. Brian and Kevin took it upon themselves to effectively write what can be considered Dune books seven and eight that presumably close out the story as Frank would have wanted. As Brian mentioned in that letter about the Dune Encyclopedia's canonicity that we read earlier, he and Kevin begin all of their story concepts with boxes of handwritten notes that they discovered belonging to Frank. So they are using these notes, plus their vivid imaginations, <laughs> to write many of these books, to write these 16 books that they have oh, in the last 20 plus years. I just came up with a new character using my imagination. Oh, oh, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Duncan Idaho. No, Leo, that one's already... <laughs> Shit. No, no, wait, wait, wait. I have another one. I have another okay, one. Okay, 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 okay. Duncan, I don't know. God, God, God wait, damn it. Wait, just Je- read the Jessica? next bullet point in our Je- script, Leo. <laughs> Stop using your imagination. I was trying to use my imagination. 
just not working. It's okay. I'll write 15 more novels and see if I can come up with something. <laughs> so, okay. Wait. All of that's fine. All of that's fine that yeah. we've said so far. Great. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about these notes. Yes. Because this is huge. And in so many places, if you look online, you'll see Brian's Twitter and stuff. They talk about these notes that they are using as the bedrock for the novels that they're building. Right. And it is true that they have these boxes of notes, sure. And then also Frank had uh, that, that we were seeing in our research. He had a, a computer disc, like a, a floppy disc, basically, with notes outlining Dune 7, the seventh book that had been in a safety deposit box prior to his passing in 86. Right. Cool. They exist. Brian and Kevin have them. There are like conspiracy theories online that the notes don't exist or that they're not writing them. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is factual that Brian and Kevin have Frank's notes. And yet, when you read any of their books, there are some reasons to question whether or not they're actually using the notes. Mm -hmm. Like Frank Herbert's notes for book seven probably didn't include characters that Brian and Kevin created from scratch. Decades later. Decades later. <laughs> like, <laughs> as big pieces of the plot like right. as like big plot twists reveals i'm like i don't it's hard to imagine that frank herbert wrote the outline for a story he was going to likely release soon ish that would require multiple prequel novels to understand like yeah. like major plot reveals so there's a very legitimate concern that the notes don't necessarily have much to do with the books that we're getting and that concern would be addressed if we saw the notes, if we just like saw the notes top to bottom and we saw, oh yeah, this is what Frank was had in mind. And this is that, okay, I can see how that relates to this and okay, cool, cool, cool. And actually probably some of the more questionable plot choices very well could be Frank's ideas, right? right. Like right. very easily. Um, and all of us would have to be like, oh, look, my foot's in my mouth. Fair enough, I was wrong. That's Frank's idea, and thus it's primary canon. Cool. But, so far, Brian and Kevin have said, we have these notes, and people are like, cool, show us the notes. And comically, Brian was like, look, a picture of the notes, a picture, a photo of the notes, and it's a disc, a, a computer disc, with Dune 7 written on it in Frank's handwriting. It's like, this is, this is Frank's disc, probably. And they're like, look, we have the notes. Case closed, as far as I'm concerned, Leo. Yeah, case closed, motherfucker. You want to question me? Look, here it is. Right. Now, follow up. <laughs> What's inside of it? Well, right. You want to you wanna maybe? No. <laughs> Fuck out of here. Right. No. Don't, don't open the envelope. No. It's Just, there. It's, the envelope is there. So believe us on yeah. what's inside of it. It's like me with my bills. They show up. I don't open them because <laughs> right. it's going to be unpleasant, but it, they're right. there. Right, right, right. I don't even pay them. Because, I don't know. You know. I'm in serious financial problem. <laughs> Trouble. No. Help. Uh, <laughs> help me. <laughs> Become a patron. <laughs> help support us what we do here at Gramja Bar. No, uh, <laughs> jokes aside, 
it is it is the case that we basically just have this photo of a computer disk and the actual contents of the computer disk have not been published anywhere or made available yeah. anywhere so personally i'm like if you if showing what the notes contained would get to, would make a lot of people not angry at you anymore then you would show them yeah and if you're not showing them it's because you may not there's have used be a reason. Them. Right. There's got to be a right. reason. Yeah. Uh, although, I'll play a bit of devil. I agree with everything you've said. Sure. But let me play a bit of devil's advocate here. Okay. From an artistic point of view, if I was writing a book adapting this iconic thing with millions of fans, and I had like bullet points to work off of, yeah. Releasing those could backfire in a spectacular way that Brian wouldn't want. Because people would look at the notes and be like, yeah, no, that's not what Frank meant. You fucking interpreted this completely wrong. Right. That I think that would be almost an impossible hurdle for any author to get over. Yeah. An impossible hurdle for Brian to get over, right? Anything he would write could be wrong based on how you interpret Frank's notes. So for him, I do understand that there's a bit of a calculated risk here is like how much is it worth to release these notes to shut up some people and how much more noise will it create if I do release them and people are more pissed that I got the notes wrong or that's not what Frank meant or blah, 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 you know? Yeah. I, also, there would be inevitably people who are saying those are not the actual notes. Like that, and then, those of course, aren't the conspiracy theories. Right, blah. right. But I also, I do think to to keep this ping pong going, I think realistically... Right now, the the Dune community is very divided on like yes or no to Brian's and Brian and Kevin's works. Yeah, and I think that what releasing the notes and showing us the notes would do is that it would say, let's say a hundred percent of people who right now are very eager to like shit on Brian's work and say these are so wrong to everything Frank wrote. Mm -hmm. They release the notes. If even just ten, fifteen percent of that group of people were like, oh, actually, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. Frank had like a whole plot line about reintroducing these like cyborg. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think that would be progress because you're always going to have detractors. Like that's, that, that is inevitable, especially in this age of the internet. You can be yeah. like, oh, yeah. Hey, I think killing people's wrong. And you'll have people on Twitter. Like, actually, <laughs> actually. <it's> <laughs> excuse me, but sometimes it's necessary. So like, it's My always ancestors. going to <laughs> use your imagination. You piece of shit. <laughs> Send. Send. <laughs> <You know? laughs> is that so, us? Oh no. That's, that's us. Um, so I think there are, there are, there will always be detractors and I have to question, like, if you're even going to be like, look, <laughs> right. I'm defend, I'm defended by this thing existing. If you're even going to post that picture, just put ev it, it, just put it all because it looks fucking weird to it's be more like shady. Yeah. the contents of this grainy photographed computer disc. I'm like, do you not know how computer discs work? <laughs> like I don't know what this is. It's very strange, and the fact that they've kind of taken this first step toward we have the notes, but we're not going to show you what they are. It invites more conspiracy theories, I think, um, or at least gives fuel to conspiracy theories because it looks like yeah. you're hiding something. Like it, it looks, just yes, yeah. it looks so fucking sketchy. Also, like there are plenty of us that are reasonable. Like I am willing to have that conversation and, and hear. 
you know, why, why make these choices and these changes? Why pat it that way? Why interpret it that way? I would love to find out. But just not doing it and then being defensive when people ask is not the play. Right. It's not the right. move. And like you said earlier, anyway. it just invites the conspiracy theories. It, it invites right. the, yeah. the internet hive mind to start m- making things up. You know, I'm starting to think they didn't use their imaginations. <laughs> Wait a second. Or all imaginations. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That new conspiracy theory. They don't have imaginations. Oh, that's a good. <laughs> yeah, can, we should, we should start that. We should start theory. that. <laughs> I think yeah. we just did. I think that's how podcasts work. <laughs> so anyway, let's summarize all of this to say why we consider this tier three. Why is this below the Dune Encyclopedia? Why is this so low on the list, considering it's the current active Herbert estate? Right. And, well, first of all, it is worth acknowledging it is hard because Frank Herbert was a very good writer. (laughs) And if you read one of Brian Herbert's books, one of Kevin J. Anderson's books, they are not the same caliber, just honestly. They and I don't think they would say that they are. They they are not. They are, they are different writers. And Frank Herbert was very good at what he did. So that is difficult. It is hard to read something that has all of these characters that we know, and for it to be so noticeably not written by Frank Herbert. That is difficult, and it's a margin. The quality differences is notable. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason people joke that it. Is just fan fiction that it's doing fan fiction, yeah. you know. It feels like that often, which is hard. And on top of that, they made a number of creative choices that, like, describe characters and involve characters that we know very well from thousands of pages of Frank's writings that don't make any sense, that conflict directly with Frank's universes and Frank's world. Yeah, totally. And actually, you know, we, we keep saying all throughout this discussion, Brian did this, Brian contradicted that. We have some concrete examples for you, dear listener. Yeah. Here in the final section of our discussion today, we want to actually dig into and point out some of the notable lore inconsistencies that Brian and Kevin have introduced into Dune canon. Yeah. Which create so many convoluted like plot holes, universe holes, that it's hard to justify some of them so we picked out obviously there are way too many inconsistencies both big and small to list out here we'd be here all day so instead we've chosen three big ones that we feel strongly about that we want to call out some of the lore inconsistencies that brian and kevin have introduced starting with the butlerian jihad yeah so One of the most vexing things that Brian and Kevin introduced was exploring humanity's relationship with technology, which is a big theme in Frank's universe. The Jihad is a pivotal historical moment in the Dune universe. Yeah. And we're going to talk about this, but to be clear, there are various interpretations of what Frank would have wanted versus what Brian and Kevin did. All of this is up for interpretation. Because Frank himself didn't write ink to paper, the Butlerian Jihad is when X, Y, Z happened. Right. It's a lot yeah. of historical references to things that happened thousands of years ago within Dune canon. Yeah. And so 
as we've stated with the Dune Encyclopedia, history can be incorrect and is up to interpretation. Also, just if you and I are talking about a thing that happened a thousand years ago, we're not going to, in our conversation in the present tense, go through all of the facts as we remember them. And that's how we kind of had to like interpret what the Butlerian Jihad is, because we're kind of extrapolating right. from what, what characters are through saying, character right? conversations, yeah, through character yeah. thoughts, through the podcasts what? that we listen to in the Dune universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to that end, right? So we don't have the facts. We don't have the like, as you said, the this is what it was. But we do get a few characters referring to the Butlerian Jihad in terms that set a certain tone. And to be clear, we believe that the Butlerian Jihad, as described by Frank Herbert in his six books, was a religiously motivated return to form for humanity, a sort of revolution against man's complacency and reliance on technology. Right. And that this was religiously motivated, but it, that it was almost a, an ideological war rather than exactly only a literal war um now there there are a few quotes that we could pull that kind of refer back to this but this is one from uh, god emperor of dune quote the target of the jihad was a machine attitude as much as the machines humans had set those machines to usurp our sense of beauty our necessary selfdom out of which we make living judgments naturally the machines were destroyed end quote and this is very in line, this idea of machine attitude usurping our sense of beauty, our necessary selfdom and living judgments, right? These, these like, we have this theme in Frank's universe, and this is all through the books of stagnation is death. Right. If you don't act, if you're not making active living choices, you are dying. And the importance of challenging yourself and Finding your limits through that breaking point, Amtal, right? Like the test of the Gamjabar, even famously in the first book, is this idea of are you truly human if you can restrain your instinct and control in order to like live and, and choose actively? It's all over the place. Even the water of life ceremony that brings Paul to being the Kwisatz Haderach and Jessica to being a Reverend Mother, and like those things are all about testing and adversity in the face of stagnation as death, right? As like yeah. this like broad underlying thing, which is not exactly how Brian and Kevin took that, right? Right. In stark contrast with those ideas, Brian and Kevin made it quite literal. In their version, the Butlerian Jihad was an actual war between humans and murderous robots. <laughs> yeah. Like Skynet rose up straight up like Terminator style robots who are enslaving yeah. and torturing entire planets. Right. And then the humans fought back. And I so agree with you that that doesn't strike me as the jihad that Frank was writing about. And particularly from that quote, the target of the jihad was a machine attitude as much as the machines. There may have been some battles against. I don't know, murderous machines or like AIs, thinking machines. But to me, it's more of an ideological shift within humanity. There's a reason so much of the quote-unquote tech in Dune is not like high-tech sci right. science fiction technology. It's all like 
very grounded and based in biology or natural like ecosystems. And so the implication that there would be some sort of war against artificial intelligence, Terminator-style robots that nearly wiped out humanity seems a bit too literal and a little too on the nose for something that Frank Herbert would write. Also, I've seen the false equivalents and I've seen the straw man constructed in online debates about this topic where people say, oh, then you're saying it's not a literal war. No, like very clearly, we have multiple references to armies left in destruction of people dying of lots of bloodshed it's a period of chaos all of these things are true the question is or or rather the problem is if it were literally killer robots enslaving entire planets the characters who are saying these things would not be like it was as much a battle of machine added no it was literally a battle against the the enslaving tyrannical robot monsters yeah it it feels like there was a war and there was bloodshed but it feels like that was people against people people against people saying because again yeah if you came to me now and said hey guy who built his entire career on effectively fancy technology right we're getting rid of all of it right because god said so or whatever because because of some religiously motivated reason because we should be eating raw meat it's it's the TikTok health guy. It's that fucking <laughs> uh it's the guy who sells the health supplements and all that. Yeah, he's like, We gotta take care of your I'd be like, No, fuck out of here. And maybe we would then fisty cuffs over it. I would lose. I'm 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 weak. But the point is, yeah, that would be violence on violence, but it would be it would be human on human, where the right. different differing ideologies are there. And you can interpret it one way or the other, but when you say it was definitely man's versus man versus robot man's versus <laughs> come get your man's. He's out here fighting robots. Your Batman's uh, fighting, you know, Ultron style robots. You are ignoring chunks of Frank's writing, which is hard, just difficult. Yeah. yeah. And to wrap up this point, I want to play devil's advocate once more. I was trying to be very careful in the script to be like, Don't be biased, catch your own bias, try to see the other side of the argument. So here is a quote, also from God Emperor of Dune, which could be interpreted as proof that there are Terminator-style machines in the Dune universe. A certain character has a vision at one point in the book, and here's the quote. Quote, No ancestral presences would remain in her consciousness but she would carry with her forever afterward the clear sights and sounds and smells. The seeking machines would be there, the smell of blood and entrails, the cowering humans in their burrows aware only that they could not escape, while all the time the mechanical movement approached nearer and nearer and nearer, louder and louder. End quote. Yeah, a great quote. Love that part of the book. And that is up to interpretation. You could read that vision as a prediction of the future. You could read it as a flashback to something that happened in the past. It all depends on how you interpret that particular scene in God Emperor of Dune. But no matter how you interpret it, the words seeking machines and mechanical movements approached are there in Frank's writing. Yeah. And so, again, depends on how you want to read into that. 
but there could be an argument to be made that Terminator-style machines did hunt down humans or will hunt down humans at some point in the Dune history. Yeah, I'll I'll be the the voice of probably some of our listeners in saying I think that section is pretty clearly a vision of some possible future and I agree that in the Dune universe at some point in the timeline there could be depending on how things play out seeking machines that hunt humans who cower in burrows and things like that. Yeah. But again, that is if we say that is a memory of a thing that happened in the Butlerian Jihad, then we are ignoring chunks of Frank's writing still. So it's it's hard. There is interpretation here. Again, you could look at these same facts and come to a slightly different conclusion. At the end of the day, I think you and I are aligned that making it a literal war against Terminator robots weakens the more important philosophical point that Frank makes about stagnation and reliance on technology. Becoming a slave to your smartphone does not mean your smartphone is torturing you in a slave pit R- right, on right. the planet it conquered. And, and, and the big themes of religious fanaticism, yeah, you know, this like religious fervor that swept across the galaxy against machines. That it, divided it, it, people, that, that divided, divided humanity, right, right. because again, this is, a, this is a universe of human stories. Making it us versus the machines is much less compelling than humans who believe machines are the answer and humans who don't which is very in line with everything Frank writes. So it really feels obvious, but ultimately all of this is our subjective take on it. You could disagree, but that's, that's our point. Yeah, totally. So that's one big thing that we have an issue with in the Brian works. Let's talk about the second thing. Yeah. This one is broad, so we're just going to give some examples. But the second general issue we have with Brian and Kevin's books is that a bunch of characters are meddled with in ways that make no sense or in ways that are just simply frustrating and don't align with the characters as they were written in Frank's six books. So there's two examples we want to give. One is the Baron Harkonnen and the other is Gurney Halleck. But there's a laundry list of many characters who have various things changed, sometimes for no reason, sometimes like a small detail like the mother's name is changed yeah, for literally no reason. It doesn't matter, but it's just changed. Those are inconsequential, whatever, those can slide. There are other issues with character backstories and character arcs and character events and character relationships and friendships that fundamentally would change how they act in the primary books by Frank right. and don't align with how they act in the books. So let's get to specifics. Baron Harkonnen, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. In Brian's books, he sexually assaults Gaius Helen Moheim. When she approaches him, this is in uh, House Atreides, she approaches him to get his genetic material to eventually have Jessica because Brian uh, and Kevin posited that Gaius Helen Moheim is the mother of Jessica. And in retaliation to uh, him forcing himself on her, she gives him a degenerative disease that makes him gain weight and become hideous, basically. Because in Brian's book, uh, prior to that event, he's this like hot gym bro. He's like a hot stacked man who's just like, you know, would put Dwayne the Rock Johnson to shame with oh, his wow. physique. Yeah. And she goes, Well, here's your punishment. 
you're not going to have a gym body anymore. And also you're going to be hideous. Right. This has some issues. And broadly, there's a theme in literature of fat people are evil. And it's not a problem that like Dune dodges, but it making weight, making someone who doesn't have a gym physique, a punishment. Right. <laughs> casts being a different type of body as a bad thing explicitly. Yes. Which is one thing. That's just casting it as this is a punishment to be a larger bodied person. The second thing is this introduces this idea that Guy Helen Moheim was sexually assaulted by Baron Harkonnen when, to be clear, could not have happened, at least the way it was described in the book. And I want to be very clear here. In order to make this happen, she enters his chambers. Piter DeVry University is hiding behind the door mm -hmm. and jumps out <laughs> with a neural <laughs> stunner <laughs> no. and, okay. and a neural scrambler gun, which we don't see in any of Dune. So again, introducing tech that then never comes up again. It's a little bit difficult. And she describes, Gaia Salomohan describes Piter DeVry University moving, quote, as swiftly as any Bene Gesserit could. L. Quote. O-L. <laughs> no. Simply fact, no. Simply no. Benny Tleilax, Twisted Mentat, like, could not match Prana Bendu weird in combat. Are no, you kidding get me? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> She's a full reverend mother. Would not work. It's Simply, not. Yeah. So, so no. Very easy uh, thing to fact check. Fucking false. False that a Twisted Mentat could move as quickly as any Benny Gesserit could. <laughs> <laughs> no, not even if the sentence were as swiftly as the slowest Benny Gesserit with a hangover. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's that's a stretch, but I'll, I'll believe <laughs> you on that still, one. Still a stretch. Any Benny Gesserit could? No, false. No. Also, she goes to use the voice and she's like distracted a little bit because it doesn't work. She goes to use the voice on Baron Harkonnen. Right. Oh, I bet that works. You'd think so. But he had a he had something. Oh, no. He had earplugs. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> he has earplugs that nullify the voice. They filter Stop out kidding. the effects of the voice. But the thing is, the idea of there being earplugs that filter it out somehow is fucking dumb and breaks the universe because that's not right. how the voice works. And also, where the fuck where did the you fuck put are the them? Earplugs? <laughs> where did they go? This is incredible. Can you imagine how many scenes in the Dune books would be different if characters could just pop some little earplugs in? There's sharper image, $49.99 earplugs that block the voice. <laughs> it's just... Holy it, shit. And it, it just changes the relationship because Moheim and the Baron come face to face yeah, at the yeah. end of the first book. Yeah. You would think she'd be like, hey, Emperor, gut this motherfucker. You know? Yeah. like. It just changes that relationship that it never is mentioned or thought about or brought up. Like, yeah. we're deeply changing a relationship between two characters because of a horrific sexual assault. We are making fatness bad by making it a punishment that is imposed upon Baron Vladimir Harkonnen rather than an, an embodiment of his own right. 
gluttonousness and his own greed and his, you know, like a physical embodiment of many of his characteristics, the themes that he represents. And then we're introducing technology that breaks scenes and entire systems that are established in the actual book itself. Right. And it's not, you know, that doesn't absolve Frank of making his antagonist big and a pedophile and gay and, you know... (laughs) There are problems that we've discussed in the past with how Frank portrayed the Baron as well. But Brian is like doubling down on those issues and making them even worse by breaking the continuity of this character. You're right. And we've been very clear to criticize when Frank does these things. It is so much less defensible when it's being introduced in this way. Right, right. Okay, let's quickly touch on our guy Gurney motherfucking Halleck. Yes, because he's I another character with some notable. Oh yeah, I'd love to touch him. <laughs> Just like he loves touching on. <laughs> he's another character that has some <laughs> problematic choices made in the prequel books by Brian and Kevin. In Dune, we see Gurney meet Doctor Liet Kynes for the first time, but Brian tells us that they were close friends and comrades uh-huh. when they were younger. They knew each other. They were buds. Yeah. yeah. Which, once again, doesn't make sense for the way they interact with each other in the actual book, in Dune. Yeah, they're like on edge with each other. Liet's like, ugh, this person. And Gurney's like, I've never met this person. Who is this Liet person everyone's talking about in the ornithopter with Dr. Kynes? It's they're like, literally like, who is this? Like, de- Liet is maybe a deity that the Fremen worship. Yeah. And it's not till later <laughs> in the book that the... You think it's that guy who was with the Fremen on, right? No, you've forgotten entirely. Right, and right. in, in the at no rash- point was Gurney like, actually, I know a guy <laughs> named Liet. I've known him I'm, for 20 years. I know a guy named Liet. Yeah. Y'all think he's a deity? No, it's a name. It's a, a name. Guy. He's a guy. Yeah. He's chill. <laughs> I've a- had a six pack with him. Like, <laughs> no. We threw back some beer. We, we made, fooled around a little, you know? The, the, <laughs> fooled around a little. <laughs> Jesus. The Atreides spend like the first third of the book unaware that Liette is a person. Yeah. And that he's not some sort of like, I just can't get over the fact that literally in like an Atreides meeting, they're like, oh, Liette is some god that they worship because all the Fremen keep talking about some Liette. And then they're like, oh, wait, shit, he's a real guy. We met him. Yeah. And, and like, I don't know. Yes. It, like, if Gurney and Liette knew each other, this is ridiculous. It makes no sense. It utterly breaks their whole interactions in the first book. The one explanation I've seen is that it was so many years ago and like Liet might have like, they just like looked different. And it's like, That's so fucking why are oh you God. bending over backwards to just, it just is it different ju- it just and it doesn't make bad. any sense. Right. <laughs> There's no justification for this. It's so silly. Another problem with Gurney's backstory. We in Dune are told as he talks about Duke Leto. He says, Leto, quote, rescued me from a Harkonnen slave pit, gave me freedom, life, and honor, end quote. And in Brian's book, he escapes by himself. Now, I want to talk about what motivates him to escape, and this is also a problem that I have with Brian's books. One of the last scenes that Gurney Halleck spends in the Harkonnen captivity in Brian's book, House Harkonnen, which is now getting a comic adaptation, and I'm really kind of worried about it. He is forced, uh, he is he is incapacitated with an orange-like capsule 
that like renders him unable to move his body at all. And he is forced to watch as his sister, who has been kept in the Harkonnen pleasure houses, he is forced to watch as she is taken forcefully. She's raped by multiple guards and killed in front of him by Beast Raban. I read the chapter because sexual assault and rape is such a difficult thing to handle well by authors. And oftentimes it can be kind of shock factory to make a book more edgy and cool, or it can like glorify it and the way that it handles the way that the victim is, is being written is really difficult and it's, it's hard to get right. So I looked it up and it is so much worse than I was hoping. Uh. Like I was hoping that Brian and Kevin had the decency to like write that scene well, and they did not. And the problem is, is this is one of many instances in which a female character who has no motivations, no desires, no goals, no aspirations is literally murdered, mutilated, or raped for the purpose of progressing a male character. Yeah. This chapter was so badly written. It's just misogynistic. It's awful. We have this woman's life being thrown away just for the sake of motivating Gurney Hellick. Even beyond that, just logically looking at it and being like, oh, Gurney was taken from the slave pits because he was rescued by Duke Leto. Let's change that. Logically, it doesn't make sense. There's already an explanation for how Gurney escaped. Yeah. Written by Frank Herbert, you don't need to change that and come up with a different, worse explanation. Right. Like, worse on a literary level, worse on a character level, worse on every level imaginable, just because you want, you know, just because you want to. I, I simply cannot even wrap my mind around the justification for doing this. It's not like Gurney's escape from the slave pits was a mystery to be solved. Right. All right. Let's talk about the last thing. So this is the last major lore discrepancy that bothers us that we want to touch on to wrap up our discussion today. Indeed. And that is the very existence of the first book itself. Yeah. And this is wild. So let us explain. <laughs> yes. It starts with a small detail. Brian changed Paul's birthplace. Right. Again, seems like one of those changes that was unnecessary, but you did it. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. As a reminder, Frank himself clarified that Paul was born on Kaladin. So to be <laughs> yeah. clear, there was no reason to change this once again. Right. It was already inked by Frank <laughs> Herbert himself. The yeah. lore existed. Why the, why the fuck are you changing it? But you changed <laughs> sure. it. Duke Leto also remarks early in the book that Paul has never been off planet before as they're preparing to depart for Arrakis. We are told that Paul has never left Kaladin. Kaladin is his home. That's why he's so heartbroken to leave it. This is your first time leaving the planet, son. And Paul's like, yep, father, indeed. Indeed. And Brian's like, nope, motherfucker. He has left the planet many times before so many in times. my prequel books. So many planets. Rather than detailing any of Paul's life on Kaladin, Brian writes a ton about Paul traveling to places like Ikaz, to Grumman, to Chiswick, to a planet called Balut, and suggests that Paul was actually born on Chiton, probably, right. and not Kaladin at all. So not only are we 
changing up the birthplace, we are once again digging our heels in, doubling down, and making sure that Paul has traveled to many off-world planets in direct contradiction with what Frank himself wrote in the very early pages of the book. But we're beating the dead horse here. He changed it. We don't fucking know why he wanted to. Naturally, folks like us called out Brian and Kevin. Hey, why did you make these seemingly small, innocuous changes for no reason? And their response was to double down hard. Their response was to start pedaling backwards and bending over backwards so much. Like, if this was a game of Twister, fucking champions over here. In order to justify the fact that they changed Paul's birthplace and that they made him travel off planet many, many, many times. In fact, it's taking the Twister analogy. It, they worked so hard. They bent over backwards so hard. It's you're watching a game of Twister and one of the competitors twists up so well yeah. that you question whether or not they exist. <laughs> right. You're like, that. am I hallucinating this? Am I? Is this a fever dream? What is this? <laughs> That's the game of Twister they invited us to play. <laughs> it's absurd. So, okay. The book... Paul of Dune comes out in 2008. Mm -hmm. And Brian and Kevin describe to us this scene where Irulan, Princess Irulan, goes to Paul angrily and goes, Paul, what the fuck, dude? You didn't tell me about Chusik and Balut and Ikaz. And you, they're all these, you went to all these planets when you were a kid. I've been writing this book, The Life of Muad'Dib, and you left all that shit out when I asked you questions about your childhood. And here's the excerpt from Paul of Dune. Quote, Exactly how much is missing from this story? I've been talking to Blood. In your accounts of your life, you left out vital details. He raised his eyebrows. Your publication has defined my life's story. What you told me, you had never left Caladan before your house moved to Arrakis. Whole parts of your youth have been left out. Painful parts. He frowned at her. But more importantly, irrelevant parts <laughs> we've streamlined the story for mass consumption end quote <laughs> so those inconsistencies oh my god where he was born whether or not he traveled as a kid were choices that he made as he told Irul on his story and then how they decided to streamline the narrative of Paul to sell it better as like the life of Muad'Dib, the book. Uh-huh. Which is implying that Dune by Frank Herbert is, is the life of Muad'Dib. Yes. And is an incorrect propaganda interpretation of yes. Paul Atreides' story. Yeah. We'll give you a moment of silence to let that sink in. Just, just let it, let's just let it breathe. My God. Yeah, it's so fucking dumb. <laughs> it's so fucking dumb. It's a, it, it, it causes so many problems. It's so many problems. So many. Like this one stupid fucking choice yeah. unravels basically everything about everything. the sequel books. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Every so many things within the thing. actual book. Oh my God. It's bad. It, it's objectively a bad choice, but when you take into account how much they're 
digging their heels in to justify their bad choices, it yeah. makes it egregious. Also, is Dune Messiah also by Irulan? Right. Carino? How much of the original six books are you going to claim are fake propaganda written by Irulan or whoever yeah. that can't be trusted because we wrote some other shit in the prequels? It's weird as that. And also, Dune, the book, has some like lovely lessons you can learn about like messiahs and fate and determinism and some really like interesting things. If that's all Paul and Irulan just deciding what to present to the universe, that weakens any theses it has about like the human condition in universe it like in for us as readers right because now it's just propaganda it's like a calculated thing and if you read that and felt that you're the fool who's played into paul's hand having those feelings thinking those thoughts versus this being the sort of like framework of you reading a book that is about like this space adventure but here are the lessons you can learn from it yeah uh it's, it's so weird this is appalling and this, to me, is sort of the nail in the coffin. Sure, you can say we're nitpicking about the Butlerian Jihad interpretation. Fine. I'll back off on that. Sure, you can say, yeah, character backgrounds were changed, but they still ended up the same characters. It's fine. It's not a big deal. So don't be so nitpicky. Fine. I'll back off on that. This, I will not back off on. <laughs> this is some mad disrespect <laughs> to Frank's original stories. Yeah. To have the gall to claim that they were false and propaganda and can't be believed because of some backwards ass shit that I wrote. <laughs> also, this I will not back off on. This to me is the nail in the coffin of why Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson's prequels harm the Dune canon and actively harm the original stories and actively go against what Frank wrote. So... At the end of the day, we're just talking about two guys who use their imaginations, right? Imaginations. The power of imagination is maybe the, the lesson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there it is. That is the very convoluted and messy canon of Dune and yeah. our takes and our opinions on it. To yes. reiterate, we're not trying to take away from anyone's enjoyment. I only raised my voice like three times. It's right. better than I was right. expecting. Yeah. In classic Gamma Jabbar fashion, we gave the folks more than they asked for. <laughs> I think they just wanted like a TLDR five-minute explanation. Yeah. And uh, here we are. They were like, can you do a mailbag? We're like, hour and a half conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, like a third hey, of the you, script. Can you just give me directions to the library? So basically, my, uh, so basically the library was established 200 right. years ago. We, we didn't right. have any books in the city. So we, we yeah. <laughs> excluding excluding the alternate reality canon of libraries yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. from. Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, but when they were found. Also, uh, every library doesn't exist. And at the end of the day, if you think you're in a library, you right. just bought into the propaganda. Right. Yeah. And actually, let me fill you in about the library of Alexandria. A lot of misconceptions <laughs> that Alexandria? we need to clear up was a woman who was killed to motivate books. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But then she was rewritten. It's true. It's true. Oh, you wanted directions. It's right around. Oh. The, it's two blocks that way. Oh, I came up with a new character. His name's Baron Harkin. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.